You're listening to Rome Schooled. I started on flying trapeze, working actually when I was eight. We're the, actually the fifth generation with flying trapeze. Why do we um, like rolling the dice and not knowing what it's going to land on? Terror is inviting. I wonder what would happen if I fail. You come very close to mortality, for sure. It's not an easy decision, but I'm pregnant. I'm flying. I'm really going where I've never been before. You're listening to Rome Schooled. It's a show about the pleasure of finding things out. My six-year-old daughters, Dana and Vern, ask a ton of questions, and so do I. And about a year ago, I realized we were spending too much time at home, on the couch, smartphone or other device in our hand. So our solution was to get an old Winnebago and drive around the country. I take the girls out of school, I make sure I bring their homework and that they stay caught up, but we wander and we talk to people in person. The distance between a question and its answer isn't a few keystrokes on a mobile device or on a computer, but rather miles down the road. In this episode, we run away to the circus and we talk about risk and reward and maybe some of the other things that go along with risk. I've always considered myself to be a risk taker. Of my two daughters, one likes to play it safe and the other will end up hanging from a tree limb or juggling razor blades if I'm not watching her all the time. Now, ironically, the risk-taking daughter, Vern, has never had a scratch, while the one who plays it safe has broken both her arm and her collarbone. But that's not the real surprise about risk. When you listen to this episode, you may be as surprised as I was about what we learned about risk and reward and regret. So here we go. Rome School rolls the dice, and we start off, as so many risk-takers do, in Las Vegas. My name is Noelia Ramos. I started um, flying trapeze, working actually when I was eight. Now I'm 33, I got three kids. Right here is my young one, she's four, she's 12, and I got a middle one of nine. We're the, actually the fifth generation with flying trapeze, mom, grandparents, sisters still in circus today, brothers, nieces, nephew. My kids are getting there. I focus more on the school and stuff, but there's nothing I can do to get it out of their blood. They're jumping everywhere, fearless. You know, you always get nervous and they tell you to go up and swing. You're kind of scared and then you like it, and then you go step by step. When I was eight, practices every day, one hour a day, sometimes two hours, different times of the day. I had it easy. My brothers had it harder. Are you scared? Nervous. Because you don't want it like miss. One bad landing could be really bad, but we try not to think of that. We just focus on timing. And I kind of like, for me, I enjoy it every single second. So I just try to do it pretty and it kind of helps. And enjoy the applause. The working, it's just something you have it on the blood. You know, you wake up, I take my kids to school, have my coffee, do my makeup, come here, warm up, go home, get the kids from school, take them to soccer, come back, do my other show. All kids in school and parents, they know me already. I walk in with my makeup, I'm like, yeah. We're talking to Noelia just after her show. My daughters are staring at her and then looking up at the trapeze that she just did her show on and then back at her and then over at her kids who are there for every show. 
we asked her kids if they were planning on being the sixth generation of trapeze artists. Um, we did yeah. a little bit. She did a little bit. She's not that into it. My son begs me. And of course we do it with the mechanic. And he thinks that it stops you. And he wants to take it out. Because he says, I can't do my style. He goes, just trust me, I can walk flip. And I'm like, no, I don't trust you. You don't understand a little bit over rotation. You go on your neck, a little bit bounce, you can bounce out. And he's fearless. But what does scare you? I think other than outside circuits, actually, the actual life, it's scarier than what I do. What we go through daily with our kids, with school, with everything that's going on around the world, me, I'm like, I think that's worse out there. This is my break. I enjoy this time in here. I have my friends, my partners. We have a good time. Then I go home. When I come here, it's my break. Everybody knows I'm here. I run in, I work, I run out, school, soccer, cooking, come back. I think anything out out of the stage is scarier than anything we go through now. The world is full of risks. My parents spent a lifetime trying to get me to take fewer risks. And yet here we are in Vegas. Let's go to a safer place. But a safer place where people are doing some very exciting and some would say risky stuff. For this episode, mostly we were not in the city. We drove south from Portland to the Salton Sea, which is in the very southeastern tip of California. And then we drove east to explore the desert. The girls climbed around on boulders near Joshua Tree, and every day this is how they wanted to get their thrill on. I like rock climbing. Why? <laughs> because you're out there on a giant mountain. And you can see tons. And but, but isn't that scary? No. Why? You can control where you step, control where you put your hands. You stop thinking about it, and then you're fine with it. And, and then, or you get used to it. Up there, one step and you'll die, and it's my favorite thing to do. Because I feel free, and I'm in control. You can in control of the risk when you're on the mountain? Yeah. On our way down, we had spent some time in Yosemite. We went to a ranger talk. The ranger had a broken hand. It was in a brace, and he also had a bloody nose. We're not really sure why. It was literally dripping on his shirt while he gave the talk, so he gave part of the talk with a tissue sticking out of his nose. So he seemed like a good guy to talk to uh, about risk. We were lucky enough that he was able to take a little time to go on a walk with us the next day. My name is Brandon, and I'm a park ranger here in Yosemite National Park. I love this place more than anything. It's, I found it originally as a rock climber. Now they're going to have to kill me to get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> the uplift of the modern Sierra Nevada only began 10 million years ago. But the Sierra Nevada is rising still two millimeters a year. That's amazingly fast. Um, let's stop here for a moment, girls. See all these huge cliffs around us? Yeah. They're still rising right now. Let's sit down for a second. I sit next to the Merced River there. I look up at El Capitan, a cliff that's 3,200 feet tall. Kind of gets the sensation that it's rising to the sky. Feel that? We saw um, some climbers. You saw some climbers up there? Really long, long history of people climbing that rock. It's one of the greatest rocks in the world to climb. People from around the world come here. So recently, I've really gotten into exploring new routes, new terrain. 
Um, when you go up there for the first time, uh, you, you you build places to sleep uh, sometimes. Um, and uh, I went up there and I was actually building a ledge, a new, new uh, route of mine, um, and uh, moving some rocks around smashed my hand a little bit. When you establish a route, you establish a route that's going to stay for generations for the climbers after us to come and have as safe as possible experience. Um, but So there's that component, but there's also the personal component of going up there and have it be an uncharted map. Um, you're not, you don't know what you're getting into until you're there. And that's an amazing thing. Perhaps the greatest adventure I've ever, I've ever found in my life. Again, the girls are staring. This is their hero. We're looking at this man with a cast on his hand and a spot of blood on his uniform from the night before. And then up at the mile-high granite wall above us and then back at the man. And the girls want to know, is it a risk climbing that mile-high sheer granite rock face? Um. You know, it's objective hazards, and those are present in whatever you're doing in life. It's all a question of balancing risk with what you're experiencing through it. So a lot of the routes up there uh, were put up long ago. Um, and the hardware that they installed is, is inadequate. It's not going to hold a fall, certainly, but oftentimes just waiting it will we'll have it pop out. It's rusted. It, it wasn't, it's not stainless steel. It's just plated. Oftentimes, climbers will go up on, on maintenance missions, essentially pulling out older hardware putting in modern stainless steel hardware that's safe and is going to last. Um, change is something that's, that's always happening here. Rockfall is constantly changing the face of the walls around us. 3,000 cubic meters of rock coming off of Yosemite's walls every year. So you've got to go up and repair the routes through these rock scars. Right, you're looking for something that's going to hold your weight. A copperhead is um, it's actually a little piece of malleable metal, be that copper or aluminum with the wire going through it that's swaged into a loop at the end. And you take that little bit of malleable metal, put it in a divot, and essentially mold it with a hammer to take on the shape of that little divot. And it sticks there, and then you clip to it and pull up on it, and you can stand on that. It's called a copperhead. And uh, those are on the wall a lot. I, I, I despise copperheads. I actually had a, a pretty significant accident last year in June. Um, I was in sort of a hard period of my life, and climbing was my, my escape. And I was climbing really hard, climbing really fast, climbing as it was the only thing that mattered to me. It was well before National Park Service. And at that point, it, did, it was all that mattered to me. Uh, 40 feet up, the copperhead broke, the cable broke, and I took a 40-foot groundfall last June. Um, two helicopter rides and Modesto ICU. But I got so incredibly lucky. I thought I was paralyzed. And in my head, I was like, it's over. I broke a rib and... Um, Less swelling, uh, I landed right on my ass. <laughs> um, and then um, a week after that, a good buddy of mine died taking a 25-foot fall in the Pinnacles. You come very close to mortality, for sure. But I came back a better climber than ever after that. It's something that I think about all the time when I'm up there. But. The main thing that I got from that is, you know, perhaps before accidents like that, you sort of feel invincible. And then you, you wake up and you realize that that's certainly not the case. And um, began to reprioritize my life. Before that, I was, I was reckless, I was brash, I was, I was invincible. After that, I, I needed, to, needed to wake up and do what I had to do to truly be alive, which just so happened to be exactly what I was already doing, but do it differently. The most fulfilled I've ever been in my life, the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life, the best I've ever felt was on a wall. 
So there's nowhere else I wanted to be. When you're rock climbing, um, it's, it's very mental. When you're in a kayak going down a rapid, ah, right, you're going, you're going, you're going. You don't stop, you don't stop. You know. Rock climbing, every moment, it's the mind games. Because it's so slow, everything is mental endurance. It's keeping yourself together so that you can approach those hazards appropriately and deal with them uh, so, to mitigate those dangers. Those moments when you're out on those leads in these really exposed areas, places where it doesn't feel like a person should belong, but you feel completely comfortable. That's home. But when you don't feel like you're at home, and you feel like you're hanging out there by a thread in a totally unnatural sense, or in any situation when you feel there's a risk and you start to feel your blood pulsing, it seems like these moments come out of situations that you didn't foresee. Like the things that your parents warned you about aren't even part of the equation. It's, it's a whole new set of risks. What about those? We asked park ranger Brandon if he'd had any really scary moments on the mountain that resulted from something other than the failing equipment or rock face peeling off. What was the scariest moment? That's a really hard question. It's a really hard question. I knocked off this one rock once. It's completely uncontrollable. A bowling ball sized rock. And we were probably a thousand feet up and it hit the ledge. It launched out from the cliff. It landed probably five feet from this person on the ground. And uh, that scared me tremendously. Risking the life and limb of others is something that I have a hard time with. Dropping a boulder on somebody's head would indeed be blowing it in a big way. Especially since this whole sport is apparently built on trust. You're trusting that people's holds that have been put in in the days of yore are going to hold your weight. And you're trusting your partner to catch you on a rope if you fall nearly a mile from the ground. Um, extreme rock climbing is a sport that's completely built on trust. And part of the game is also this philosophy that you're not to mar the rock face by putting any new holds in unless it's absolutely necessary. I imagine myself on a granite wall, say 2,000 feet up, and I, I would want to um, peg myself to the rock with as many holds and ropes as possible. I'd probably look like Gulliver when he's tethered to the beach by a thousand uh, Lilliputians. Does this ethic of using fewer holds actually make the climbing route more dangerous? According to Brandon, not at all. It's bringing yourself to the level of the climb rather than bringing the climb down to you. It's something to aspire to, not to conquer, right? We aren't here to conquer, we're, try we're here to experience, to, to rise up to the challenge. Earlier last year, um, going through hard times, my dad was really sick, I was going through a divorce, um, and I got, I got into a point where I just didn't care. That was incredibly scary to me once I realized what was happening. And um, I turned to, turned to this place, and this place saved me. I'd love to hear some questions. What's the big, biggest risk you've ever taken on the... Biggest risk I've ever taken? So there is a type of climbing called free soloing, that you climb without any equipment, without any gear, and you climb by yourself. That is a, a, a risky thing to do, for sure. But I don't make it a, a common practice to be doing that talking about a spiritual event, free soloing can certainly be that. What about you, Dana? Any that we forgot? A lot. <laughs> a lot. 
Well, we can't, we can't take all this time. Let's see here. Let me just look at my little list that I made. The girls have gotten a lot more involved in the interview process as we've gone into our second and third outings into the world to make this show. And that that's really apparent uh, in the beginning of this next encounter in which we talk to a fellow named Les. He's an Elvis impersonator, and he has only one leg. We actually met Les back in Oregon and sat down with him at a teriyaki restaurant to hear his story. So I should warn you, there's some talking with mouths full in this segment. Also, as a side note, Julie, the girl's mother, comes to pick them up and takes them away to gymnastics class. You'll hear that happening. Here's Les's story. I go, I go out and cut these big trees down. Yeah. And one day, I went with it when it when it went to the ground. You know, the top of the tree, they cut it off so that it, the wind can't get to it. But with all that foliage, when, that, when the wind catches it, it makes it go, so they have to top it. Yeah, that's what I used to do. I topped them, thinned them, and took them out. And one day, one of them took me out and went back and stopped. And there was a house right there. And the kids were up in the window looking out, and so, I threw caution to the wind and went up to fix it. And I, they pulled it over with me in it. And I woke up 10 days later with no leg because the tree landed on my leg and squished it. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put it together. So what happened to the leg that fell off? Well, when, whenever you lose something, if you lose it somewhere or another, it gets cut off. They burn it. They take it and put it in an incinerator. So here's what happened to the rest of this story, right? I was born in 1950. That makes me 65. I'm 65. How do I look? How's it look? Not 65. Not good? good? <gasps> I'll go try to look better. She said good. Oh, okay, good. I said not 65. Oh, you said, okay, well, real bad. <laughs> it's my mother. Aren't you my mother? Aren't you my mother? You want to be my mother? Are you I'd my like, mother? I'd like you to be my mother. Well, let me get a wig. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be really weird. This is so fun. This is Julie. Come on over here. I won't bite you. You go over okay. Oh, thank you. That's cool. Am I getting an autograph? Yes, ma'am. You certainly uh, are. Because Now, do you want this with uh, Richard M. Nixon? Or no. would you rather have... Well, Nancy told me I'd get further ahead if I just keep that my one. arm down. For sure. That's a good Elvis Presley signature. Well, I've done better. Favorite song? Gosh, I uh, love uh, Veronica. Think of Elvis Costello. Yeah, Elvis Costello. This is Elvis Presley. Here's your song. Ready? A baby, let me be. Oh, you loving teddy bear. Put a chain around my neck. Lead me anywhere. Oh, let me be. Oh, let him be. Yo, my teddy bear. He's good backup. I like him. Could you go a little, a a little, little further, like about a couple of blocks, and I'll take care of business here. <laughs> What song did you write on this? Which that's not a song, that's just his, uh, that's his autograph. Yeah, that's my, si I sign things to people. Right. See, I'd signed it to you. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Hey, do you have any Thousand Islands? Uh-oh, that, that's a mistake, I shouldn't ask for that. Dressing? Yeah, dressing. No. You know, oh, it's okay, uh, Roquefort or? No. That's fine, I'll, I'll, I'll work with this. Okay. Les has just been handed his plate of teriyaki and has asked for Thousand Island dressing to go on it. And the look of horror on the waitress's face is one that I wish I could convey through this show. But alas. He kids around a lot about his leg. He makes almost nonstop jokes about it, at least when you first meet him. And accidentally, I ask him if he does any stand-up comedy. 
Maybe not the best thing to ask a guy in a wheelchair, but he jokes around about it, and uh, we say goodbye to the girls, and he answers my question. Well, I don't know. I, I don't that know. cost me an arm and a leg. The doctor said I could keep my arm. <laughs> Like Bye. Bye. Bye, girls. I'll see you in the morning. Hope so, bye, bye. That's a nice family, Dad. I'm very, very lucky. You no, know I just do it off the cuff. I'm not really stand up. I, I put it in my my. When I do an Elvis show, like an hour, I'll do 45 minutes of Elvis, and then I'll sit in some guy's lap and I'll go, "You ain't nothing but a hound dog," and they love it. They break up. <laughs> so you were cutting a tree. Mm-hmm. Man, I've climbed thousands of them. Basically, all I remember. I remember passing him and uh, seeing the kids in that dormer. It had to be something done with it. And that's why I went up was because of the kids in the dormer. And when I told my lawyer that, he said, well, he says, that just made your case because you threw caution to the wind and went up that tree anyway. And that's why I did. You have a really good sense of humor about it when you look back. It must be painful to remember. The most pain I got was when the nurses started wrapping this leg and fixing it, you know. I wanted to knock him out of the chair. That hurt terrible to do that, to mess with that thing. All it is is a stub with the bones sticking out and then, I guess, that was a recovery. Did you consider what you were doing to be a dangerous job or a risky job? Oh, yeah, you bet. It's all dangerous. That top can, uh, what they call barber chair, right in your face, take you out. Took a guy's nose off one time. But you, you must have liked it. I did, yeah. I love things like that. I'm bipolar. So I, I don't, I throw caution in the wind. I don't worry about this. The, just like going downtown, I run those streets when I was 18. I don't look at the danger that's down there. Guys with guns and all that stuff. I don't even think about it. How do you relate that to being bipolar? Bipolar is manic depressant. Sometimes you're high, sometimes you're low. I'm always high. I'm never low. What'd you do before you were a treetop? Lumber mill, paper mill, taxi, limousine, tow truck, milker, roofer, painter. painter. I used to paint bridges. Well, the higher I got, the better I liked it. What's winning a case mean? Workman's comp gives you the money for it because they, they rule in your favor that, that it was, wasn't your fault or whatever, you know. So it was a one-time payout? Oh, yeah, you get lump sum and that's it. It doesn't carry on. So how do you make ends meet now? Uh, singing and hauling things with my truck and government money from handicap. SSD. Les's outlook is something else, and he continues to take risks. As an aside, I don't know if you could hear this in the background, but the song playing on the radio was Daft Punk's Get Lucky. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Um... Here's a little of one of Les's other pursuits, the Elvis impersonating gig, which, as he explains, leads him to a life of love and risk that spans the continent. I'll be so blue thinking about you Decorations of red, oh, on a green I started in, in, uh, when I was in grade school and I stayed in on my recesses and learned Return to Sender for my sister because she couldn't afford the record. And that was in 1965. And by 1972, people said, wow, you're good at that. You should do something with it. By 1980, I was pro. I sang in this theater over here in 1986. I, I used to sing in, in chat rooms before they quit them. 
And some gal comes on there and she goes, oh, I love your voice. I wish you were on my front porch. Where's your front porch, honey? Georgia. Where's your airport? Atlanta. I'll be there next weekend. And the next thing you know, I got jumped on a plane with my leg money. And away I went. And I took her to Graceland. Well, yeah, kind of a risk, but martial arts, man. And she was a martial art instructor. What do you mean a risk, but martial arts? Taekwondo. You know what that is? Korean karate. You know, why, I would, why would I have a risk? I can handle myself. <laughs> That's part of it. And then the other part is a lot of it I just I don't even recognize it because I, I think it's because of the bipolar. Yeah, so I took her to there. And it, there was there were several others that and I flew to. Les pursues these love risks with varying results, and he continues to be romantic. It's a risk. Some people just live to take risks. They know what they're getting into, and they hope to get something out of it. Take Carl, for example. Carl Serfalio, I'm a professional stuntman, stunt coordinator, actor. I've been doing this for 40 years. Picture an epic scene in the 1980s blockbuster adventure film Against All Odds, a movie about risk. One of the antagonists is about to be put to rest, pushed off a 65-foot cliff. This is before the days of CGI, so it's really happening. I remember saying to Jeff Bridges, uh, Jeff, just push me straight. Don't, don't push me sideways or else I'll, I'll turn like a helicopter and I'll move. So I'm supposed to be dead, just push me straight. And he said, okay. And uh, I remember the shale uh, underneath me, the sound of the shale, and then what happens to me is that my concentration hones in like a beam. Everything else goes away. The fear goes away, the consciousness goes away, the sounds go away. All I needed to do was hold my breath and not move. Carl is the Sylvester Stallone of stunts. He was a body double for Lou Ferrigno, who was a pretty tough guy. He's been in hundreds of films. My favorite is possibly him kicking Tom Cruise's ass in Far and Away, which I didn't see, but you can watch the scene on YouTube. He's also the guy who gets his head crushed in a vice in the movie Casino. Not such a lucky character, but very hardworking and lucky man. Here's what it was like to fall 65 feet. I had doubled a, a, a hero of mine, Alex Karras. Uh, he gets killed in the, in the scene, and Jeff Bridges pushes his body off of a cliff into a cenote, which is a big well in, uh, in down to the Yucatan. And it was about 65 feet. Uh, flat into water because Alex is dead when they roll him off. It was, uh, you know, you, you, you fall six or seven stories flat, hitting water. Yeah, I went down by six or seven feet, maybe, but um, but hit, you know, like a ton. And um, so that was scary. That was scary. It was, it was fearful. I was uh, uh, also aware that I thought I was um, completely immune to, you know, I was indestructible. But but it didn't scare me any less. I was, I, I had passed out, I think, before I hit the water. Um, uh, there, there's something about um, my fear and my ability to shut that fear off, but I think it also turned off everything else in my consciousness. I had my eyes closed because I didn't want to see anything coming up because I didn't want to move, because if I moved, I would have owed him another one, you know, because I'm the dead guy. So it's the last thing I wanted to do was jerk up and, you know, take a look at the ocean. The next thing I remember is looking up and <laughs> seeing, um, you know, looking up through a tunnel, seeing bright light and blue skies and, and all these people that are around the tunnel 
And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm dead. I'm on my way. And uh, it was actually the crew <laughs> standing above. And, um, and I was hearing little voices and it was my, it was my, uh, my safety diver pulling me up to shore. Um, and then I somehow woke up at LAX a couple of days later. So I, <laughs> I was the Mexican doctor there on set asked me if I wanted a shot for pain. And I must've said yes. And then they, they poured me onto an airplane and um, honestly, God woke up at customs at, at, at LAX. It was a great flight. <laughs> they got the shot and come to find out like five guys turned it down. <laughs> but they didn't tell me that until I was on the plane. So um, yeah, so that. This career, stunts, acting, um, it's a challenge. It's, it's a new job every day. It's, it's things you need to challenge yourself and, and overcome or listen to the little voice inside that says, hey, stupid, don't do that. <laughs> you know, because that voice, fear, whatever it is, is, is a, a great barometer to have. But it's the love of the challenge. So without being a daredevil, you know. Daredevils, to me, the, the word daredevil is, is somebody that wants to break a record or get notoriety for the one thing they do that may kill them. Stunt people will do a gag, a stunt, over and over again until it's right, until the camera gets it right. Daredevils don't jump up and get back in the car and turn it over again or light themselves on fire again um, in a scripted area. You know, we've got, we've got parameters, we've got people around, we've got safety, so we can do it over and over again. And that's the difference. It is not 100% safe, ever. And making it look dangerous, more dangerous on screen than it actually is, is our art. When we're sitting in the audience and we hear gasps for things that we've done, that's a, that's a huge payoff. That brings me to a core question, and that's why do I want there to be a scary scene in a movie? Why do we feel the thrill and exhilaration of somebody almost dying before our eyes, even though we know that it's pretend? My biggest discovery from us talking to Carl was the fact that he, a stuntman, was not much of a risk taker despite the intense emotions that he evokes in us when we watch him do what he does. When it comes to risk and danger, it's so much more about what we feel watching him. This is where the exhilaration comes from. It comes from the audience's gasps. The actual work of stuntmen, although not completely safe, is choreographed and rehearsed. It's, it's timed, it's choreographed. Um, everything that we do is by the nth of a second um, to get the illusion and be able to set it up again and again and do take two. So have I, have I been attracted to um, risk? Yeah, but on the safe side. I've always been on the safe side. When I was a kid, I never like climbed trees and jumped from the roof to the pool and all that stuff. I was just like, no, 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 I'm fine right here. <laughs> so so I, think, um, I think as I matured, I, I trusted myself more to um, conquer those fears. When I talked to the girls about going to Los Angeles to talk to Carl, Dana actually asked me, why do they use stunt people when they could fake it on a computer? Her question about why not just pretend with CGI brings up the question of Carl's other big risk, and that's his career and his career longevity. The upside is that being a stunt person, you're a little bit outside the box. You're a little bit different. You do stand alone. The, the tough part of it is that every day is a hustle. When I'm done with, with my gig, when I'm done with that show, I'm unemployed. So it's on the phone, on the email. To make it a career, you need to accept the fact that you could work for a day, a week, a month, uh, six weeks.
but at the end of it, you're unemployed. When I was starting, um, uh, Action TV was, was blowing up in the late 70s through the 80s, and we would work two and three shows a day sometimes. Jump from The Incredible Hulk to Knight Rider to Greatest American Hero, or you know, stuff like that. And uh, it was always about being smart enough to know that, that this is going to end. I, I think to have a steady gig with a regular paycheck, I've never had that. Um, uh, I would have to be doing something I dearly loved, that I dearly loved, to be in, in pretty much one spot to do one thing. Ultimately, what we get from talking to Carl is that he and his colleagues will always have work as long as people make movies. Maybe not falling 65 feet into cenotes, but maybe just to avoid sprained ankles for the stars. And here's why. The film studios and their bean counters end up making quite a few of the decisions in the risk calculus. Now, all these action stars, you know, Stallone, uh, uh, Schwarzenegger, um, why do they need stunt people? It's because if Lou twists an ankle, he's down for a week. The show's down for a week. Hundreds of thousands of dollars are down. If the stunt double tweaks his ankle, they pull another stunt double in. A lot of them, a lot of actors do so much of their own. Tom Cruise does so much of his own work. But there's times where, you know, the producers say no. The insurance company says no. He's worth way too much money. And so is the crew. You know, we're all commodities. You know, when, when, when we're done making them money, they're done with us. So is the way of the world, though, you know? You are listening to Rome Schooled, the show that indulges in the pleasure of finding things out. We stole that from Richard Feynman. Today, we're finding things out about risk by talking to people in Southern California and in Nevada. We're talking to them about the risks they take, some of the risks that they would have taken, and the risky situations that they put themselves into, knowingly or unknowingly. The last chapter of this episode, I want to take you back to the casino, but it's not what you expect. I knew a musician in Portland, a really great musician. She had many careers, really, all at once. She was in radio programming, and she ran a couple of radio stations. She's an excellent musician, and of all things, a naked DJ. She took risks. A while back, she fell in love and moved to Vegas. And I figured she'd be good to track down and talk to for this episode. Come with us to Vegas and meet my friend, Shell Bailey. Her stage name, for many reasons, is Bombshell, and... That's what Shell dropped on us right when we sat down to dinner. It's not an easy decision, but I'm pregnant. You really? Yeah. Right on. I'm going to go it alone. So, uh, you know, I'm going to be 44 next month, and, you know, I figure that by the time my child is 16, I'll be 60. I'm not going to stop living my life, so I'm going to do it. Here I am. My boobs will get bigger. It'll be great. <laughs> great. Yes. Absolutely. It's Vegas, baby. People want mementos. You want memories of your trip here. Tell us about Vegas. Look at this town. It's amazing. So I pick up and I move to Vegas. All of a sudden, uh, it, it, it was hard moving here. Moving here is difficult. My, my relationship was in a perpetual state of up and down. Um, we were in a state where we'd fight and he'd run away to his brothers and leave me. And I mean, I was terrified. This city really scared me when I first got here. You can find yourself drinking at a bar at 7 a.m. Um, 
the the way that men and women treat each other in this town. You got a lot of, of sugar daddies and a lot of women looking for sugar daddies. It's hard to get a job here. Everybody's competing for a lot of the same jobs. You, I mean, you'd think it'd be easy with all the little strip malls and whatever, but it's not. I've seen a lot of people who have come uh, recently, uh, uh, a dancer, she moved from Florida, she thought she was going to come and make a ton of money, she made $35 every day for two weeks and had to head home. Another fellow moved up from Texas, he was a businessman, nine months later, like, I'm not making it, my roommates pulled out on me and they're supposed to have rent and, you know, somebody spent it on something they shouldn't have spent it on and I'm out. But I got on the FM dial to do a radio show for this electronic dance music station. Uh, and I was producing the show, and the general manager at the time decided that instead of paying me what I was supposed to get paid, I was going to get a small, in-kind donation. And she said she'd consider this a gift. I could find somebody to do this for free. You don't know the amount of people I have lined up. And I left. I quit. But then I ended up going through the, the program director and the owner and uh, this woman who had fed me so much BS was let go. And I ended up getting her job. So, so I'm doing sales, radio sales for the first time in my life. I'm knocking on doors. I'm taking on a new job, a new thing in a new town. But you know, I'm, I'm on the air a li little bit still. And um, you know, if, if, I can, if I can put it together, if I can start stringing sales together, you know, who knows? But I'm making it. I'm making it. And I have insurance for this baby. <laughs> so the kid could be the next president or the next Charles Manson. I mean, <laughs> okay, it's a risk. We all know that. It could love me, it could hate me. You want to raise your kid here? Oh, man. That the cycles that I'm going through right now emotionally, it changes about every 90 minutes, it seems. So we're, we're due. In about 10 minutes, I'm going to have a different opinion. I've thought about moving out of this state before the baby is born. I'm not going to have this child born in Las Vegas. I'm not going to raise a child in Las Vegas. I've got to get married to another man before this child is born so that it has absolutely no connection to Las Vegas. Do I have any takers? Um, two... Um, I actually have I have I have a network here now it took it took my boyfriend leaving me a lot of times for me to realize it but I do I have a network I have friends I know people um, I have a little house that I like I mean, it's not the fanciest but it's home now now I'm thinking you know I'd like to be able to continue to play and perform through this pregnancy and I'd like to do that and represent because there really is a glass ceiling in my industry as far as being a DJ is concerned. You do not see women getting paid well or booked a lot as, as a DJ. So at that moment, our food came, and so did the 20-something-year-old photographers who took the complimentary pictures. They came back and predictably offered us pictures of ourselves on glossy paper for $24 a pop. We accepted the free miniature one, and we rejected the $24 prints. Our friend Shell has a ton at risk here, if you haven't picked up on this. Just imagine how much she feels is hanging in the balance. But because she's such a strong person, I feel that I can ask her, over dinner, without her losing her appetite, 
Which of these multitude of risks that you're taking are you feeling the most anxiety about? Uh, well, first, uh, certainly the health of the baby. Um, I'm worried about my career. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I still have dreams. I'm still trying to... You know, I'm four hours away from Hollywood now. <laughs> when, when I was little growing up in Enid, Oklahoma, my whole life I thought, as soon as I can get out of here, I'm either going to L.A. or New York. And I feel like I'm close. I've got all this experience and all this, and it's just, oh, I'm just close. I want to travel the world and entertain people and make lots of money and have seven different charities. One for kids, one for animals, one for old people, and one for everybody else. That's our friend Shell Bailey. She's very talented and driven. If you want to hear some of her music or see pictures, you can visit djbombshell.com. That's just one L at the end of Shell. The girls and I left the restaurant to go for a walk through Vegas to look at the lights and to see what there was to learn about risk and reward from the people on Fremont Street. Shell snuck back into the restaurant and bought us one of the pictures that we had politely rejected. She left it under the windshield wiper of the Winnebago, a real class move. And a week later, she called me from Sedona, where she was taking a break. She had had a miscarriage. You're listening to Rome Schooled. Vern, you, when we went rock climbing, you were just a step away from death. Did that make it more fun? Yeah. Why? I have no idea. Well, in the allowance game, you start at this square that says home, and there's squares that say walk your dog, earn this amount of money, go to the movies, and spend this amount. Why is allowance fun? Well, uh, well, here's what I like to do. When I roll, um, and I count how many dots I have, and then when the next person rolls, I'll can't put all those dots together and see what they make. What if it was the same every time you rolled the dice? Would that be fun? No. No, because no one would win. They would all, and it would not be fun. Whether you win or lose kind of depends on the dice, right? Yes. So why is that fun? I have no idea. Me either. Why does it feel fun to roll the dice? And take and a chance. And take a chance. You tell me. I don't know, is that what makes it fun to play the allowance game? Yeah. I never miss an opportunity to talk about my love of gambling. My friend Luke Burbank is the host of Livewire and Too Beautiful to Live. You can often hear him with Paula Poundstone on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's one of those voices that you hear on NPR. You'd have to listen pretty closely to pick up the fact that he's got a little gambling in his blood. I go to one casino in Seattle a lot, and it is, to a lot of eyes, a real crap hole. (laughs) 
Um, people that come in there, it's all shapes and sizes. When I win, there's a there's an excitement and a relief that washes over me. It's a weirdly relaxing thing if your brain and your biochemistry is oriented towards liking gambling. Even if I'm not winning, I am somehow oddly relaxed. I don't know if it's that my eyes and my senses are engaged in a way they aren't typically. It is really a happy place for me. I think in my normal life when I'm walking around, I'm thinking a lot about you know, things I'm supposed to be doing and conversations I may have had that didn't go right. And I've got a lot of stuff going on in my brain. But when I'm sitting there at the table, all of that stuff recedes into the background. It's a very, very relaxing state to be in. I would guess that the people who really like gambling are people who also have very, very active brains most of the time. doesn't mean they're smart. <laughs> I'm not trying to mix those two things up. But I do think it has a special appeal to people who have their brain is just kind of spinning. And this is one of those things that just kind of settles it all down. That's a big draw for me. There's also, it's such a tactile place, the casino. If you love the casino, there are the way the chips feel. They're made of this certain kind of clay. So they have a real heft to them. And when you're holding a handful of those chips, you really, you can feel it and you can tell right away what it is. And the sound of those chips as they click over. And there's the rhythm of the things that the dealers say. I, I think if you're uh, somebody like me whose biochemistry uh, is uh, is such that you you like gambling, you experience it differently than than everybody else. Whatever chemicals, whatever serotonin that release, uh, maybe it's dopamine. Whatever it is, it's being released. When it is released in my brain, it's a, such a strong euphoria that it it sort of overrides my logical brain. My logical brain, as I'm walking into the casino, looks around and says, "This place is here because of people not winning." But I don't know if it's the serotonin receptors or if it's just like my heart <laughs> swells up bigger than my brain. My sort of emotional core and my, um, you know, the, the, the reward part of my brain lights up so hard that I just look past the fact that my logical brain is telling me you're probably not going to win. And I feel, I feel very optimistic when I walk into the place. Maybe a part of this show is an interview with uh, some kind of a brain scientist who actually knows what they're talking about. Luke Burbank. He just released his 2000th episode of Too Beautiful to Live and the 300th episode of Livewire. And apparently he thinks he knows something about producing a podcast or a radio show. <laughs> Actually, it's a pretty good idea. Let's go talk to our resident neurologist, who happens to be my dad. We went to Washougal. We went for a drive with a man who has the same name as me, so we just call him Classic. Uh, dopamine is released when there is excitement or when there is satisfaction, and it's a normal physiologic response. It changes membrane potentials. It interacts with a receptor on the surface of a, a cell. When there are two cells that are sitting right next to each other, if one of them releases dopamine, the other one responds to the dopamine uh, it can then go on to, uh, through other connections, provide a feeling of satisfaction, of fulfillment. Um, it's a good thing, it's a normal way that we have that, in the best of circumstances, promotes positive behavior. Uh, some people overdo it by providing a synthetic input of dopamine into their brains with the use of uh, drugs such as uh, cocaine or morphine or um, amphetamines. 
uh, can produce an excessive release of this and artificially provide that satisfaction. It's an understatement to say that my dad doesn't do drugs. He doesn't drink, in fact. A sip of alcohol has never crossed his lips. It's pretty safe to say that he's a pretty safe guy. He doesn't take a whole lot of risks, and after trying to pry out of him what his favorite scary movies were, there are none. What his favorite thrill rides are, there aren't really any. I, I got him to tell me how he gets his dope on, his dopamine on. Well, I think my dopamine comes from fairly mundane situations. It may come from um, a good interaction with family. It may come from learning new things. This morning, it came from actually fixing the furnace that Linux experts were unable to figure out by a little bit of um, logic and uh, reading some of the manuals available on the web. The thing really works. And man, I think I had a real dopamine rush. I think it comes from maybe my thermostat, speaking of furnaces, uh, being set a little bit differently, uh, that I get probably as much pleasure as the guy climbing El Capitan. You know, back to the risk-reward thing, this is what I, I'll say, and, you know, this might be a certain amount of rationalizing, but I have done a lot of gambling in my life. You know, not vast sums of money. I'm certainly not uh, the guy who they're putting up in the penthouse suite at the casino. But um, if I counted up all the money that uh, I have risked at gambling that has maybe not always uh, made it out of the casino with me, uh, it would be a number that would seem excessive to the people who don't understand the appeal of gambling. But the amount of enjoyment that I've taken from being in the casino uh, with these people that I know, these people that are in the sort of struggle with me, I'm not just talking about my friends who I bring to the casino, although that's also fun, but just like... Old uh, women from Laos who I play pie gal with, and if they haven't won for a long time, they'll say, long time no eat. Long time no eat means it is time for me to win some money because I've been sitting at this pie gal table for too long, not winning. And the enjoyment that I've taken from just being around casino culture is immense. Provided that you're not gambling the college fund away or, uh, you know, making just massively stupid financial decisions. To me, it has actually been worth it. If I could go back and take the money that I have, um, that I've uh, invested, I like to say, in casinos, uh, if I could get that back, but then it would also mean that I wouldn't have met all those weird people and had all those experiences and those ups and those downs, I would not go back. So that tells me that in the sort of risk-reward, I don't know, formula of this whole thing, even though financially it hasn't been a boon, uh, experientially, it really has been. And, uh, you know, I, I, I gotta say, people who are willing to roll the dice, literally and figuratively, are usually people that I find myself wanting to hang out with. If you've got the huevos to hit 16 against a face card, to take a chance, if you can live with the consequences, you're somebody that I'm probably gonna have a lot in common with. And so I, I really value my days around gambling and around the casino. People do gambling to win money. And do you think it's fun? Yes. Maybe. Why? I don't know. I don't know either because I've never played. Well, when you play allowance, you're rolling the dice. That's like gambling. Uh, I don't think it is. You're taking a chance and you might lose money. Lose money, but it's not real money. You can get it back for the next game, but in gambling, it's real money. 
Do you have to spend a lot of money? No, just a little. Um. My parents always played poker, and um, when my husband and I would go back with our three daughters to Minnesota, when we put them to bed, we got out our quarters and dimes and nickels and played poker till midnight. Uh, my first adventure at the casino, though, was when Atlantic City opened, and we took a little bus trip to check out the casinos with my parents. The guys had to wear a suit. We had little yellow Playboy pins that we wore, yellow designating what bus we took. I guess my biggest win at one time was $8,000 that I won on a video poker machine that was like a multiplier one. I was with three friends, so I gave them each $100, and my daughters each 1000 and the rest I kept for myself. And I felt warm and fuzzy for a long time. I sat next to a lady in Minnesota who played dollars, and I was in awe. She said, you go to dollars and you never want to go back. And one day I was having a bad day, and I thought, I'm putting 50 bucks in at $5 at a time, and I hit for $800, and that changed everything. They were so excited for me, patting me on their shoulders. You know, you try not to take any more than what you are mentally prepared to lose. When you walk inside those doors, it's like all your cares are left at the doors, and you go with a good friend, and you gamble and have dinner and gamble a little more, so what more could you ask for? When I grew up, my dad, we all lived on a farm, and my dad was renting it, and I guess the farm was going downhill, and the owner said, Cease, I think the hole is too big for the patch, and that's when we moved to, so I guess maybe he was a gambler even back then. Who knows? I'm Vanna O'Brien. I'm a social worker. I have a private practice in therapy. Well, gambling is an interesting risk because it has that intermittent reinforcement aspect, which is you don't know if you're going to fail, but sometimes you do, and intermittently you don't. And that's the addictive quality of that. And that's the adrenaline rush. If people consistently won, say, small amounts of money, it would lose its charge. Intermittent reinforcement is the most powerful reinforcer. It's the rat in the maze going down to get the cheese, and rat cannot figure out for the life of it when that damn cheese is going to show up. But it does sometimes. And because it does, you keep going in the hopes. The rat goes down that maze and it will go until it drops dead. Because every once in a while, a little bit of cheese shows up. So you try to do the same thing that you did last time and it worked, but this time it didn't. So, but it must have something to do with the thing that you did last time. So you did a little bit more of that and it didn't work, but then it does. You have to keep trying to find out what is the trigger I push and it's intriguing and I certainly have talked to people who think that there's a system to some of the like the slots some of it is challenging yourself to to figure out is your theory working so you stay in it with the belief that you can outwit the resistant person in the relationship or the slot machine or the dealer at the blackjack table or whatever the girls and I sat there talking to Vanna over coffee about the risks of gambling. The risks involved in gambling, regardless of whether they're high stakes or low stakes, are really different than the types of risks involved in mountain climbing or falling in love or being a stuntman. Playing with things that are really scary is um, a way to grow. 
an element of fun, for me anyway, involves doing something that's hard for me to see if I can do it. And, that, and it's the question of, can I do this? So growth is, for me as an actor, I've looked for roles that allowed me to explore sort of a different aspect of my personality or because I'm a therapist it's also interesting to think what does go on inside the, the mind of somebody who acts like this and so that for me is a stretch and a stretch is well you might not do it so well but you would know you were going beyond your usual uh, limits but a risk is you're not only going beyond your limits it carries with it the risk of total failure. Yeah, she really risked that one. That was great, but it sucked. You know? So like I, I did a, a role that was written for Maggie Smith. I pushed and pushed this artistic director to do this part because I wanted to. It was really risky because I'm not at all like Maggie Smith. And the review said very politely, she's not at all like Maggie Smith. I just can't do that as much as I'd like to be the Dowager Empress, and, you know, on Downton Abbey, I ain't got it. <laughs> I just don't. I took the risk, and I didn't make it. Years ago, I was in a play called Greek, and this character I played had a 20-minute monologue as a sphinx, and I had to climb up on a table, put on this hideous sphinx wig, and hurl this rant out at the audience that was absolutely guttural and visceral and I had to spit and drool and what I found as I was doing it was I like this this is not me at all I'm a soft-spoken fairly reserved person it felt like this is creativity it allowed me to go off the page and fly so whatever that means to people I think that's the risk-taking you know, it's flying past who you are into um, a stratosphere and you're dangling in some way. And there's all kinds of room around you to stretch and reach and fly. And the thrill is, you know, it's like, I'm flying. I'm really going where I've never been before. Terror is inviting. I wonder what would happen if I did this, I might fail. And sure enough, you could fail in something like that. You could crash so badly. When I first concepted this episode with the girls, it was our idea that there would be a certain calculus, and it would involve risk, reward, and regret. Because that's always the way you're taught things. You say, if you take this risk, you might regret it. Amazingly, we talked to a lot of people who had taken a lot of risks, different kinds of risks. And I believe we had real in-depth conversations with them in which they were honest. And not one of these people has a regret that relates to any of the risks that they took. Regret seems to be if you learn something from a risk you took and that expands your knowledge of yourself and who you are, assuming you don't, you know, lose a limb or something in the process, you're richer for it. There's a reward in having done that and realizing that um, you failed, but you learned why you failed and you learned um, more about yourself in that failure process. I am not 
Maggie Smith, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You just listened to episode two of Rome Schooled. Risk, reward. Thanks so much. Let me know what you think or get involved in the show. Write me at jim at romeschooled.com. More information on a little used tool we call the internet at romeschooled.com. There will be more episodes in the coming weeks, including one about beliefs that are beyond belief and another about people living off the grid. Please look for them. We want to thank all the people who sat down to talk with us when we were traveling around the country, and especially want to thank my co-producers, Lydia Ritchie and Ben Landsverk. Ben and I did most of the music that you heard, and Lydia is responsible for so, so many things that you're hearing and seeing, especially if you go to the website, romeschooled.com. And thanks so much for listening to Rome Schooled. Let's go find out.